Welcome to episode 47 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, Equine Veterinary Medicine and Liberty as a Mindset with Nadine Lindblom. I had the privilege of connecting with Nadine, who I discovered through Instagram on her page, The Balanced Art of Liberty. I was instantly drawn to her reels as her horses looked so happy and willing and exuberant and clearly were trained to a high level. I particularly liked watching or still like watching her reels where her horses are doing more collected movements, completely at liberty and just look so happy about it. And I always find it really fascinating when a horse trainer has another profession or area of interest. And Nadine is also a qualified equine vet, which gives her a unique perspective on training horses with her academic medical background. Nadine has worked closely with horses for the last 16 years. During this time, she has had the opportunity to learn from several fantastic trainers. However, she says the most profound lessons have been from the horses themselves. In 2020, Nadine graduated from the University of Queensland with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science with honours. Studying and working as an equine veterinarian has helped Nadine understand horses on an even deeper level. Nadine preaches that in order to have a horse that is willing and able to engage, connect and use expressive movement, he needs to be healthy and free from pain or discomfort and stress. Nadine believes it is important for horse owners to learn to recognize the subtle signs to be able to help their horse sooner rather than later. Therefore, Nadine's work with horses, which she calls the balanced art of liberty, also focuses on the pillars of equine health, as well as training the eye to notice the small but critical changes in equine movement, posture and behavior. In this episode, we discuss Nadine's horse journey into liberty training and veterinary medicine, her background and experience with traditional riding, trick training, liberty training, natural horsemanship, and the academic art of riding. Liberty training where the horse feels they have no choice versus allowing the horse to say no. The use of non-escalating pressure and rewards in training how studying and practicing as an equine vet has influenced the way Nadine works with horses, Nadine's foundations for liberty training, how to have a happy and enthusiastic horse, the pros and cons of anthropomorphizing, all the usual fun horsemanship breakthroughs questions, and so much more. I really enjoyed speaking with Nadine and hearing her unique insights, particularly around liberty as a mindset. I really related to her when she spoke about her transition um, towards uh, positive reinforcement when, you know, she initially started in natural horsemanship and thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then as she got more experienced with it, she started to question yet again and, and go, oh, hmm, actually, if we're using pressure and release alone, what's in it for the horse? Um, and I myself have, have had these similar thoughts on my own journey, hence the incorporation of positive reinforcement also. I found Nadine to have a calm and centered energy, and she's truly an advocate for the horse's welfare, both from a veterinary perspective, but also in her training. I know you're going to love the show, so let's jump in. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a light, happy, and willing partner. 
I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship and equine learning theory. And now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication with your horse so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing the partnership. Get more learning resources, including my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Click the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review or screenshot this episode and share on social media. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome Nadine Lindblom to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, no worries at all. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start off with the first question, which is, can you tell us about your horsemanship journey from when you got into horses and what has led to what you're doing today? Yeah, of course. Of course, it's a quite a long, um, it's, a, it's a long story, but I'll try to keep it fairly brief. Um, I mean, basically, I've been into horses since I can remember, since I was really, really little. And I come from a really non-horsey family. Like my parents are not into horses and my brother's sister not into horses. So it was a bit of a random interest, I suppose. And so I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to horses when I was really little. Um, and I'm from Sweden originally. So when I was about seven years old, my parents decided that they were going to get a sailing boat and they were going to take their kids and they were going to sail from Sweden to Australia and stop at all these different places and um, it, we were doing that for about three years. And I remember that, like at that time when I was so young, I didn't have much appreciation to going to all these exotic lands and all these exotic, exotic places. But my biggest focus was where are the horses? <laughs> so whenever we would go into like into town to explore a little bit of, of that town that we were at, I'd go. <laughs> there was like sometimes these little information shops that had all the like brochures on the walls. And I would try my hardest to find one that was like a trail riding brochure if there was any like tourist like trail riding things. And then I would, of course, beg and beg and beg my parents to let me go on one of those um, if, if there was one available. But of course, I was too young for them to like send me off by themselves. So if they were to book one, they had to go to. <laughs> and <Not bad. laughs> yeah, and them not being very horsey, of course, it wasn't something that was high up on their list of things to do when they came to a new country. Mm-hmm. So um I did manage to convince them in Galapagos and Venezuela and I think another place. And we also found a horse in Fiji (laughs) that I got to ride around on the beach. But it was always like horses, horses, horses. And a little bit random, I think, because none of my family is really into horses. But when we got to Australia in 2005, I was able to start taking some lessons and eventually I was able to get my own little pony. And she was a 12 hand high pony and she, it was in her late teens when I got her and her name was Twinkles and she was super, super cute. And um, Twinkles, obviously she was, she was only 12 hands high and I was like 11, 12 years old at the time. So I grew out of her really quickly. So when I realized like I couldn't ride her as much anymore, I still wanted something to do with her, which is when I started teaching her some tricks and started getting a little bit into trick training. So I went on YouTube and I looked like, how do you teach your horse to do this? And how do you teach your horse to do that? And of course, a little bit of like creative thinking as well. So I um, I taught her to lie down and sit and do like a little Spanish walk and bow and um, smile and kiss and like all those, all those little tricks, which I thought was a whole lot of fun. And 
eventually as well then like I wanted a horse that was rideable or that I could ride a little bit more regularly so I rode Twinkles like a little bit now and then but yeah I, I was too big for her so I ended up my riding instructor had a horse for sale and that was Callie who I still have to this day and she was a four-year-old off the track thoroughbred <laughs> and at that time I had like two years of like riding experience <laughs> and she never really raced but she was trained to race like she trialed a couple of times and she had been through all the racing stuff and then my riding riding instructor had her sort of for a few months and she was really quiet but she was still like an off the track thoroughbred so I remember when I was younger that like I was trying to ride her and she was rearing I was trying to get her like down the trail and like riding her away from twinkles at that time and of course she had separation anxiety so she was rearing and almost flipping over backwards and all that fun stuff that you don't really care about when you're young and you have like no fear at all yep (laughs) so looking back at it I was just like oh my god what (laughs) and it was yeah, I, I don't know. You just don't have any fear at that age at all and you just kind of push through it. So I was just sort of pushing her through all these things and I managed to stay alive somehow. And But she eventually, I mean, she got sort of worse. Like she, she didn't really get worse with the riding, but she got worse with the ground stuff, like tacking her up and trying to mount, like get on and she wouldn't stand still. And whenever I brought the saddle out, she would pin her ears and like kick at the air and try to bite me and all those sorts of things. And with the knowledge that I had at the time, I was under the belief that she was just being a mare and that she was just being, that she was just like being sour and that I just had to put her in her place and, you know, just kind of make her deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, Event like it was just sort of from I suppose like the mindset that I had been taught getting into horses that you know you just show her who's boss and you tell her she can't behave like that and that's what I did and she would kind of suffer in silence and sort of put up put up with it but there was something in the back of my mind that was like I think there's something else going on like I wonder why she's acting this way and like why doesn't she like it when I ride her like why doesn't she look forward to me coming out with a saddle so we can gallop off into the sunset together you know yeah and how old were you at this point I was 14 I think 13 14 Mm -hmm. so I was very much under that kind of like saddle club mindset that oh we're gonna have this amazing bond and she's gonna love me and we're gonna gallop away and it's gonna be beautiful so I was very upset when that wasn't the reality (laughs) (laughs) um and so but there was this little niggle in the back of my mind that was like no like something's not quite right so eventually I got the vet out I think the vet was coming out for some other I think it was just like vaccination or teeth or something like that and I was like oh look can you like have a look over her and just make sure that she's okay because she's doing all this stuff when when I try to get on her and when I tack her up and just just to make sure everything's okay and the vet palpated her back and she literally almost dropped to the ground like I have never seen like even after practicing as a vet I've never seen such a severe reaction to palpation of the back and like she just dropped in the hind end and she literally almost like went completely down I was just like what on earth so we had a look at the saddle and I had a saddle that was literally sitting on her spine like there was no spinal clearance it was like sitting right on there and I had two saddles at the time so I had one that was sitting on her spine 
and one that was way too narrow for her that was like severely pinching her withers. So you'd palpate her withers and she would try to kill you. And then you'd palpate like the middle of her back and she would almost drop to the ground because she had these like two separate saddles that were causing her two separate severe pain points. And because I wasn't very experienced, I didn't really know how to ride her properly. She hadn't didn't have a developed top line, so it wasn't like she could lift her back and carry me properly. Like it was like completely not a good situation for her. And looking back, I'm just like, I can't believe she didn't do anything worse like while riding her. Like I can't believe she didn't just put a foot down and say, I'm not doing this anymore because she was in such severe pain and she's just such a beautiful soul that she like she just suffered in silence and she was like okay like I can do this I can put up with the pain and like thinking back at it I feel absolutely horrible but it's also a little bit of a learning experience because we're always doing the best that we can with the knowledge that we have and back in that day I never intended to harm her at all like I loved her and it helped me you know not be as judgmental I suppose when seeing like people that are just getting into horses, you know, wanting to do the right thing, but not doing the right thing for the horse. Like it just helps me sort of understand the position because we're never, it's very rare to meet a person that wants to harm their animal. Like we're all, we all have really good intentions. So, and it's all about educating ourselves and educating each other and learning from each other. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, I really, you know, feel horrible about that Callie had to go through that, but it was also, it was really valuable for me to have gone through it. So the vet obviously was like, you cannot ride her right now. She needs many months off. I think she said three to six months off at least. And you need to get your saddle fitted and like you need to do this and that. And if she's still not better, then I I think we even talked about x-rays and stuff at that point was kissing spines, which now I know she does have, that she did have kissing spine, but well, I mean, she had that and a lot of other issues. And as well from her like past racing career, I believe she had like a lot of body um, issues in her body itself, just unrelated to the current situation. There were just past injuries and past issues from having been started so early and yeah. all that area of things. But so I didn't, I wasn't able to ride her and of course, at that point, when you're that young and you have that saddle club mentality, you're like, oh, but riding is like, what are you going to do with your horse if you can't ride it? Yeah. You know, like, and I, I already had this experience with Twinkles and that I had taught her tricks and everything. And that was a lot of fun. But I was like, oh, that's like pony stuff. Like you can't teach a big horse. Like that's just, you know, that's like pony, like teach ponies tricks. You don't teach the big horses tricks, like, you know, like that kind of thing. And I don't know why I was under that impression, but that was just sort of what I had in my head. And so, yeah, the vet said three to six months off at least, and then we'll reevaluate. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, well, what on earth am I going to do? Like, I have to lease a horse so that I can ride a horse. But at the same time, this was in 2010, I believe, around that time. And my family and I, we were going to go back to Sweden to visit our extended family and spend, I think we spent two months in Sweden at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I left um, Callie and Twinkle's in like a, a holiday adjustment property where they could be looked after while I was away. Mm-hmm. And while I was in Sweden, I heard about this place called Horse Vision. And Horse Vision is a place run by Rebecca and Christopher Dahlgren. And they are incredibly beautiful people. I don't have enough good things to say about them. They are absolutely 
incredible as people and with horses and they are just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And how horse vision works is that Rebecca teaches like these days she teaches like liberty training, bit of trick training, but at that time it was more like um, natural horsemanship style training. Yep. And because it's like 12, 13 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And she was doing like the natural horsemanship and then Christopher does the academic art of riding. Oh, yeah. So. What a I, nice combination. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's awesome. And the way that they do it, like they run clinics and those sorts of things, but they have their home base and you can go as a week student. And when you're a week student, you get to learn from both Rebecca and Christopher and you get like a lesson a day with both of them. So you do like a horsemanship session then you do an academic art of riding session and yeah it was just really cool and I was like oh my god that sounds amazing because I saw all these videos of Rebecca working with her horse and she was doing all this liberty training and I was just like what like how is this even possible like my mind was blown I was like I have to go learn from her and so we managed to find a horse that I could borrow or lease and for for like this for a week so I could spend a week there at Horse Vision and so I got one lesson with Rebecca and one lesson with Christophe for a day for five days and at that point I wasn't really ready in my journey to learn about the academic art of riding because I wasn't really experienced enough to take that information in like I was still like kind of learning like I, I, I knew I was confident rider but I wasn't into the biomechanics and moving the shoulders getting inside hind leg to step under shoulder in travail like all that jazz but it was still like a bit of an eye-opener to a different way of riding and using the dressage for the horse rather than the horse for the dressage kind of concept so it definitely planted a seed in my mind but it was not something that I really took with me a whole lot to progress with on my own but later on like now I that's like a really big focus of mine the academic art of writing but at that time I was just like whoa brain overload and I kind of went okay that's a really cool concept but the natural horsemanship was like what like this is like a whole new world and I was just so completely like my mind was blown by this way of working with horses that that's kind of what I took most from that first time at Horse Vision. I've been back several times since then. But, yeah, it was like that eye-opener for the natural horsemanship side of working with horses. So I took that and then I went back to Cali and I was like, well, this is great because I don't need to ride you to do these things. Like we can do groundwork and, and that kind of stuff instead. So I worked with her and I basically did what I had learned in Horse Vision like after about two weeks it was like down pat and we could do all the different things that Rebecca had taught us, like move the hindquarters, move the forequarters back up and like do a little bit of lunging and changing directions and like a little bit of body control and like the start of Liberty training in a round yard. So like, and sort of send the horse around, let him come in and like relax and a lot of sort of pressure and release sort of principles. And I was like, Oh my God, amazing. And I worked with Callie and I basically, did the same couple of steps with her for like months <laughs> until because I didn't have anyone to sort of help me progress at that point like it was just working on the same things that I had learned because I was like well I can't move on because I don't know what to do next mm-hmm. so I was kind of frustrated because I really desperately wanted to move on but I just didn't have anyone around to help me and 
I don't like maybe there was someone around but at that time I didn't think that there was anyone in my area that could come and give me lessons or anything so I did the same thing over and over again and Callie became sort of because it was very repetitive she became very sort of relaxed in the situation and to me I thought she was really bored and I was really bored as well and I really wanted to progress on and eventually I kind of got to the point where I was just like oh I'm just going to try this thing and and I'm just going to try that thing. And I did like trial and error and I sort of figured out, okay, what do I want to sort of, where do I want to get to? What do I want to, what do I want to teach her next? And then I would just play around with like all these different things until I kind of got there. And at that time I was like a little bit frustrated because I was, if someone was there to teach me, I would have been progressing a lot faster but it was a bit of a blessing in disguise because not having someone there to teach, to show me exactly how to do it, when to do it and what to do, I had to allow the horse to teach me and I had to let the horse become my teacher. And I had to really learn how to think and figure out how to get my message through to the horse. And I think that was the biggest, like probably the breakthrough biggest breakthrough in my horsemanship learning how to really think for myself Mm -hmm. and allow the horse to teach me and because if I had someone there that was exact teaching me exactly what to do the entire time I would have become reliant on that type of guidance whereas eventually I became more sort of self-sufficient and being able to think and sort of look at something like think of something that I wanted to teach her and be like okay I know how to get there because I got better at thinking how to communicate with my horse. Yeah, makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. And the thing, I suppose, like I I explored a lot of different paths and they were all very much based on pressure and release and leadership principles as well. Mm -hmm. And the wall that I can continuously hit with my horse is that I could do all this stuff in a round yard or even in an arena But if I took her out into a really big space or like into a big paddock or like on the beach, for example, like I wasn't even game to go on the beach. I was like, no, she's going to run away. But if I went into a bigger paddock, I always had this worry in the back of my mind that I was just like, okay, well, well, what if she runs away? She might run away because I can't correct her if she does run away. And that way she's going to learn that she can just run away whenever we're in a bigger space. And that was a really sort of, big thing when I realized when I sort of realized that that's what I was thinking because at the time that was just kind of my mindset didn't question it but I started to realize that well hang on if I'm worried about her running away and leaving there's something not quite right here that she probably doesn't want to do this in the first place so then I was thinking okay well why would she want to do it like why what's in it for her like why would she want to do like come into the middle of the round yard and do circles around me for like ever and like change directions and like circle upon circle and I do this and that. And I realized I was sort of in this, like for her, it was like, okay, in here with you is the less bad option. So if I run away, then I would make her work a little, it was like making the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. Yeah. So I would make her work a little bit hard and then I'd allow her to come back in and we'd do our little exercises, you know, whatever it was that we were working on at the time. But for her, it was like, okay, if I leave you, it's going to be really bad and like a really bad situation. And if I come in, it's a little bit less bad. <laughs> so if she was in a big paddock, she'd be like, oh, well, I can just run away further. 
exactly yeah I'm faster than you and I you know I can and I would not be able to chase her for like ever so that was a bit of an eye-opener and what I wanted was for my horse to feel okay about being like to to leave that everywhere else was kind of good but in here with me is even better yes that's the kind of mind mindset that I wanted in my horse and so that was a really big realization for me I feel that I was creating this situation where she's like okay well this is a less bad option I'll just do this thing and you could tell like I look back at videos and stuff from that time and you can tell that she's not really like you can tell that she's not engaged by her own choice and everything she was doing was to the minimal effort and I was always there like keep going don't stop like go 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 and like that that was another thing that I didn't want to have to continuously be pushing my horse to continue going and that she always felt really lazy so to speak at that time I would label it as lazy but I wanted my horse to be a lot freer in their movement and expression it and that they were going off their own accord because they felt good and that they wanted to go and sort of have that feeling where the horse was moving for themselves and owning movement but then I was just like that's impossible (laughs) that's just like a really far-fetched idea um so but what I realized as well you know as the years went by is that I was doing liberty training like it was like a physical thing I was focusing on that my horse was doing liberty training and it's a common thing as well that you hear that oh I do liberty training with my horse or my horse does liberty training yeah but really liberty is a feeling like it's a feeling that the horse should have and it's not necessarily something he does because a horse can be free and like not attached to you and be doing all these maneuvers but he doesn't feel at liberty on the inside yes and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, if you're good with pressure and release and you can use it in a skillful way, you don't even have to put a lot of pressure on the horse to make him realise that being in with you is the less bad option. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a big sort of thing for me as well, that like working around that sort of mentality. And I lost my train of thought now. Um, so (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) We went on a, yeah, we went on a little bit of a journey with the whole working out that's, um, like perhaps I guess using pressure and release alone, wasn't going to be the thing that you were going to carry on with. I'm feeling like this is leading towards your journey into positive reinforcement. Yes. Um, hang on. I'm reading my notes here. It's good (laughs) that you can edit these chats. (laughs) I was going to say as well, just on that last, you're finding your place. Um, Yeah, I think with the liberty side of things, I think it's a big misconception in the kind of equestrian community because people see people working with their horses at liberty and go, oh, wow, that horse just wants to be with their human. But it's not always the case because it's, you know, that horse doesn't have it, thinks it doesn't have another option because when it leaves, there's more pressure. Um, So whilst it does look really beautiful from the outside, depending on the methods used, when you break it down, you're like, oh, maybe it's not so beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I think without yeah. having knowledge about the training concepts or methods behind Liberty, some styles of Liberty training, mm-hmm. it can be a little bit misled in terms of, of how it actually is. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. 
And it's so easy to sort of watch a liberty, like uh, someone demonstrating liberty training, be like, oh my God, it's such a beautiful like partnership and it's flowing and like they have such a magical bond and like, you know, like the relationship and this and that. But then if you look at the training behind the scenes, it's, you know, it's just the horse choosing the less bad option sort of thing. um, But yeah, I really got into this mentality that liberty should be something that the horse feels rather than something that he does. And a horse can be at liberty even if he has a halter on his head. Like it's, it's just the mentality. So I was like, okay, well, how do I reach this point where the horse truly chooses to be with me and be engaging in the training session rather than him just feeling like he has to? So I realized at that point that I had to let go of all this control. Like I was always trying to control the horse and I was always trying to stop them from leaving. And I was afraid that if they do leave, I have to do something about it and show them that that's not, you know, a good thing. And I had to really let go of that control. And if they left or if they decided to say no to me or they just wanted to walk away, I had to be okay, like emotionally okay with it, not just be like, yeah okay and like stomp off in the other direction but emotionally be truly okay with them saying no because that's showing me that they do have a choice yeah so that was a really big thing so I was like okay well I have to let go of control and I tried it but I wasn't 100% committed to it because I was I had I was scared that I was going to ruin everything I had done so far with the horses and at that point I had Nina as well but I was worried that you know, if, if I show them that they do have a choice and that they can say no, that, that they're just not going to do anything anymore mm-hmm. for me, <laughs> you yeah. know, and that that I was going to unteach them all of these things that I had spent so much time working on and teaching them. So that was, I sort of tried this whole like letting go of control thing, but I wasn't 100% committed to it. So we kind of ended up in this like rut where the horses were just confused because some days I would sort of insist that they do something and then other days it would be okay if they didn't. And it was like this whole wave of inconsistency and just because I couldn't really let go of that feeling. So it just, I got frustrated because nothing was working, but I I also wasn't aware that I was holding on to that as well. Yeah. Like it, it was just like, I thought I was letting go of control, but I wasn't really. So eventually I was able to completely let go of control and that's when everything completely changed. Like it was, it got a lot worse before it got better. Like, don't get me wrong. It got a lot worse before it got better. But when it did get better, like, holy, I just entered this whole new world with the horses. And it it is, I did start incorporating a lot of positive reinforcement as well. Mm -hmm. But I feel like because they were, feeling at liberty they had that feeling suddenly their expressions changed as well the way that they were moving the way that they wanted to offer different uh, maneuvers and different ideas and think their way through problems they were starting to change the way they were moving change the way they were engaging which is where I could start tapping into working on collection at liberty and incorporating like a little bit of the academic art of riding stuff into the liberty training and finding a different sort of posture in the horses and starting to play around with the posture side of things and and collection, which was really, really interesting. And I think it was when I got Thai as well that because I was already on this path, 
that's sort of when I started. I started from the beginning with him with this mindset. So he didn't have these as much of these preconceived ideas as the mayors had, as Kelly and Nina. They were sort of like, I had worked for so long with them with this mindset, but then I got Ty and he was like sort of a blank canvas. And he showed me it was possible to work at Liberty almost comparable to how a foal is with his mum in a way. And I'm a bit hesitant to use that analogy because I'm not saying that I want my horses to think of me as a mother or anything like that, but if you watch like a mare grazing in the paddock and you have the foal running around and playing and exploring their body, exploring the movement, exploring the space, but they're constantly mentally connected to the mum. They're checking in with mum. They're like, okay, where's mum? Because she's sort of the home base. She's sort of, if something goes wrong, they're going to go to Mm mum. And they're always just, they have her in their focus. No matter what they're doing, there's this part of their brain that's just like, okay, Mum's over there, mum's in that direction. And I found that with Ty, I could sort of reach that same level of autonomy where he can can run away and he can do his thing, but he's keeping me in his mind all the time. Mm -hmm. So if I was to want to call him back or if I wanted to influence him in some way, he's mentally connected and he's in this space where he's eagerly waiting for my guidance And he's kind of like, okay, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? While still having the freedom to run around and buck and explore. But if I change what I'm doing or if I say, okay, now we're going to go this way, he's right back with me, almost almost like you would see with a foal with his mum. So if mum stopped grazing and ran away the other direction, the foal, you know, is connected, like comes back and they're just like, okay, like where are we going? You know, like that sort of similar mental connection. And Mm -hmm. I use the word mental connection a lot and I think a lot of people assume that it's like some kind of woo-woo hocus pocus thing that I'm talking about like a telepathy sort of thing but I, I literally just mean that the horse is in a state where he's keeping me in his focus and he's waiting for my guidance at the same time so he can go and do whatever it, it is that they want to do wherever they want to go but there's this part in their focus that's always checking in with me and where I'm going and what I'm doing and if I'm gonna you know ask them to do anything and because they're I'm working with this bit of um positive reinforcement as well they're sort of you know always sort of waiting for the guidance be like oh like what's my next thing like how can I unlock my next reward and be working towards that so then if if they're like in a really high energy state and I say hey can we collect that a little bit they go oh yeah let's let's do that because they are in that mind frame where they're waiting for me to give them a little bit of a clue as to what's next if that makes sense so cool so much fun to work with yeah, sounds like it. And I'm really curious to know how you actually let go of that control um, yeah. and how did it actually get worse before it got better? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good question because it was definitely a mindset change in like in in myself, like really committing to the idea that I didn't want control of the horses anymore. Like I wanted them to have their own space. And it's... Of course, a little bit. I mean, that's in the liberty training itself. Like then if we're working on that, that's sort of they can say no and everything. But then we have this other side as well where I have boundaries with the horses that they're not allowed to cross those boundaries just to keep myself safe and to keep them safe as well. 
And there's certain things where it's non-negotiable. So if I ask them to get on a trailer, for example, I expect them to get on the trailer because even in the event of an emergency, you know, they need to get on the trailer. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm horrible to them or anything like that. Like I set them up for success and I make the trailer a really good experience, but I make sure that I ha- that they understand pressure and release sort of going into the trailer and that that's sort of what I can fall back on if, you know, if I need to load them on the trailer and they go, oh, no, don't really want to. I can I can insist a little bit in those situations so they understand the concept, but I've made them comfortable with the entire situation before I need to use it. Yeah. And that's going on a tangent a little bit, but I just it's just important to, like they do have complete choice in the liberty training to an extent, yeah. you know, like they they can't come in and push on me or try to kick me or, you know, any of those dangerous, like if they're going to be high energy, they need to be a certain distance away from me. Yeah. And those situations, so I will put my foot down and say, no, you can't come in close to me. That's like, you can't do that. Yeah. But if they become startled or stressed or anxious about me doing that, they can just, you know, leave completely and take their own time and just be somewhere else if they want to. Yeah. But if they're going to come in and work with a live, they just have to respect those sort of boundaries. Mm-hmm. And But in, coming back to the question, I think it was just that mindset change and being 100% committed to it completely yeah. sort of letting it, they said no, it was almost like a good thing. Like if I asked them to do something and they're just like, no, I think I'm just going to go away and just eat over here, I was kind of like, oh, good. Like they, <laughs> they actually felt brave enough to say no. Yeah. And they now realize that I'm not going to do anything to like to insist that they that they that they do the thing that I invited them to do. Mm-hmm. And changing your mindset as well to that it's not a command, it's not a cue, it's an invitation or a suggestion mm-hmm. as well. So if I ask them to come with me at Liberty, and for example, if they're on a bigger sort of curve, if I'm on a small circle and they're on a bigger circle and I invite them into movement, it's like, why don't, would you like to come with me in movement? And rather than like driving them forward and being like, I'm going to drive you away, but you can't leave. <laughs> yeah. So it's, always, it's like, I feel like they're very in tune to our intention and sort of the way that we ask for things. And if, if you do have a genuine intention of an invitation or a suggestion, they will respond to that really beautifully. Mm-hmm. whereas you know if you ask it as a you will do this now I'm going to ask you nicely but if you don't do it I'm going to do something about it you know then they kind of straight away go into this mindset where they sort of sort of shut down a little bit in their yeah. engagement if that answers the question yeah that makes <laughs> sense and then how did it you said it got worse before it got better what specifically happened oh, yes. when things got worse <laughs> yes so at this point, it was when I had Nina and Callie. Mm-hmm. And because I had been working so much with this escalating pressure and and when I say escalating pressure, it's not like going and beating them or anything. You know, no. it's just, you know, you start really softly. And then if they say, no, I don't really want to, you go, okay, well, I'm going to make my body language more, you know, you escalate that pressure a little bit until they sort of comply. Mm-hmm. But when they realized that they could say no, they said no to everything. <laughs> Oh no. So that's sort of how yeah, that's that's how it got worse before it got better because they just went, Oh, well, if we have a say in this, we're gonna we're gonna say no. You know? Because oh, wow. they were they 
yeah they they just gave me truthful answers and I was like wow like it was of course a bit of a slap in the face because I was like oh all this time I've been under the impression that they were doing all this stuff because they respect me as a leader and like I had this whole leader mindset and Mm. and all this that kind of all those thoughts going through my head and I was like well I thought that they would want to do it just because they respected me as a leader like why don't they want to do this for me and when they started saying no to everything, I realized that, okay, maybe there has to be something in it for them. Mm-hmm. Maybe there has to be something, you know, on their side, some something to encourage them to do it. And, you know, either that they think, you know, in, intrinsically that it's fun or that it's like more of a play sort of feeling or something extrinsic where it's, you know, like giving them a food reward or something like that. And that's when I started as well, getting a little bit more into the positive reinforcement side. Mm-hmm. and exploring that but at that time like I had, didn't have much strategy to my positive reinforcement it was like oh yeah if you do this you get food if you don't do it you don't get food mm-hmm. so at, it's sort of like you get into that um side of positive reinforcement where you are sort of forcing them to do something mm-hmm. just because if they don't do it they don't get the food that they want so yeah. that was a really big journey as well and that's like a whole different story but learning how to use the food reward in a way where they didn't feel like forced to do it just because you know if they were really hungry or something and I was like holding this food and I'm like well you know you get the food if you do this thing so uh, the journey I could talk about the journey for like a day and a half I think because there's just so much but we haven't even really got to your veterinary practice yet can you tell us um that and why you wanted to be a vet and and that side of your journey yeah Yes, of course. Um, So basically, when I graduated from school, I wasn't really, when I was little, I always wanted to be a vet. And it was kind of like that vet phase, you know, like, Mm. I think most girls go through, I guess, like, oh, I want to be a vet, I want to play with animals all day and get paid for it. That'd be great. And after doing work experience in grade 10, and I did it at like this small animal clinic with like dogs and cats. And I realized that that was definitely not what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm never going to be a vet. I hate it because I spent all day cleaning cages and cleaning vomit and cleaning diarrhea. And I was like, nope, 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 not doing that. And when I got to grade 12 and I had to make a decision about what I was going to do next, I decided that, you know, like I either want to do equine science or I want to do vet science. And at the time I was really set on equine science because I didn't want to do any cats and dogs and other animals I was like I'd have to spend five six years working on like other animals and a little bit of horses and I was like that's you know no and then my parents were like you should think about that again like you know you have the option like you had like I had good enough grades to get into vet and they're just like they kind of pushed me in that direction they're like you know if you do vet you know you have that opportunity so you should think about doing that in terms of the options that I'd have when I graduated and that. And I was like, no, like cats and dogs, I don't want to do it. But eventually I sort of saw their point of view and I was like, okay, well, maybe I should do vets so that when I finish doing vet, I can do like only horses or even just use the veterinary, like the stuff I had learned from doing vet science and just apply it to like the training and use vet sort of on the side and care for my own horses. Like I wasn't 100% committed to working as a vet and but that sort of changed a little bit as well going through the course and 
doing everything. And when I got to the end of fifth year, I, you know, I, I did want to be an equine vet and I did want to like work as an equine vet and then sort of see where that path would lead. Yeah. So now I've been working as an equine vet for, I mean, I graduated in 2020, so for about two years. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely been a very big learning curve and it's definitely helped in some aspects as well, well, in a lot of aspects with the training. But, yeah, like it was just sort of a, a complementary thing, I suppose, when I sort of started going into it. I was like maybe I can like sort of be a trainer and be a vet at the same, like, you know, that that would be pretty cool. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> yeah, how cool. And one of our listener questions is, has studying or practising as a vet changed how you work with horses? And if yes, how so? Yes, yes. So the biggest thing I think that has changed, like the horse training or sort of viewing horse training, is that, I mean, vet science is very science-based. So everything that you do is evidence-based and it's very much critical thinking. And if you read a scientific paper, you have to critically, you know, evaluate that and see, okay, well, is this proper evidence? Is there any holes in this, in this um, experiment that they did? Is it, is the evidence or is the results that they got from the paper? Is that, you know, are they reliable results? So it really taught me to think critically. And in the horse world as well, there's a lot of like flashy marketing out there and there's a lot of like labels that people put on horse behaviour and the training, you know, and and they say stuff in a specific way to kind of tug on people's heartstrings or, you know, to, to make people sort of fall into that mindset in a way. So doing vet science really taught me how to think critically about what other people were doing and what they were saying and where's the evidence behind this type of training. Mm -hmm. And I let go of a lot of things as well when I started to look at things that way and like really sort of digging for the evidence. I'm like, okay, well, where's the evidence of like leadership theory and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a way that sort of changed and it like they, they sort of teach you how to do it as well. They teach you how to look at the papers and they teach you like everything you're doing that, you know, it's a lot revolving around the, the newest research. And mm-hmm. if you're looking at a paper and it's like from 1998, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's a pretty old paper. Let's go yeah. to the newer science and what's changed. So I think in a lot of the horse world, we're still with quite old information sometimes like there's, we like there's a lot of you know we're still under the like not not every I mean there's there's a lot of people though that are still under the very old traditional type of mindset like dominance theory and mm. making sure the horse knows who's boss and like all that kind of stuff okay well where's the evidence behind that mm. um and then the other thing that it really helped is like it you, you learn anatomy and physiology and about their needs and welfare on a much deeper level mm-hmm. so when I'm working with the horses the first thing I want to know is are they physically capable of doing this thing that I'm going to invite them to do? And if their needs are not met or if there's something wrong in their body or if they're uncomfortable in one way or another, I'm going to force them to say no. And I never want to put them in a situation where they are forced to say no to me. I always want to set them up for success and put them in a position where it's where I know that they're sort of capable. And sometimes it's you can't avoid it because they can't speak to us. They can't tell us if they have a headache, for example. Yeah. But if, 
Yeah, it just it just taught me a lot more in terms of their their physical health and and their welfare and how how they think. Well, not really directly how they think, but it helped me understand when I went to further reading about learning theory and like dabbling in a bit of like the neuroscience papers that are out there. It helped me understand that on a level that I wouldn't have been able to understand before I did the vet science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually haven't looked it up, but are there papers that actually debunk the myth of dominance theory and, and leadership in horses? There, there are. Like the, it depends sort of where like there's a lot of um, texts written around behavioural medicine and uh, herd dynamics and sort of those sorts of things. I mean, there, there are a lot of papers out there that are studying equine ethology Mm-hmm. And also making speculations about how it relates to training and how it doesn't relate to training. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And the most recent one that I've been exploring is Lucy Reese's work. Mm-hmm. And she has studied wild horses a lot. And she's got a, a lot of interesting um, interesting observations about horses and her dynamics and and though that like that side of things and in her book and when she writes she does she references what she says a lot she refers back to a lot of different studies That's so cool. if you were interested in yeah if you're interested in like that that side then she's she's a really good one to check out and that way you'll find a lot of papers as well but it definitely has been sort of disproven in, a way. in, a, in yeah. a way that it relates to training Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in the way yeah. that it relates to training. Yeah. Yeah. And using your um, background in veterinary science and all your education in that area, plus your training with horses, your liberty training, your academic art of riding training, how would you now summarize your training approach or philosophy with horses? Basically, I think, I mean, the big part of the approach and philosophy is, again, that liberty is something that the horse feels rather than something that he does. Yeah. So ensuring that there's that choice and autonomy there. And I work a lot on, I call it rewards and gentle guidance. Mm -hmm. So in order for my horse to figure out what it is sort of that I'm inviting him to do, I have to give him some kind of guidance to figure out how he can receive his award, uh, reward, (laughs) award. Um, (laughs) So the guidance that I give them is very much based on like using your energy and your intention because they're really in tune to to that I feel like I don't have a special like scientific paper to back it up that they feel that but in my experience with horses they are it seems like they're incredibly in tune to like you're like not so much energy on like sort of a hocus pocus kind of way but more your intention and how like if you imagine your energy when you're really excited and you're really you know in that high energy state versus when you're really relaxed and you're calm that's kind of the energy level that I'm talking about so I feel like they're very in tune to where you are in that state and that of course changes your own posture and they can sort of um, relate off that as well so gentle guidance is more like non-escalating pressure so I give them I give them guidance and I give them time to figure out what that might mean. And usually they're in a mindset where they are actively trying to figure out and actively sort of problem solving. Mm -hmm. But having the horse in that state where they understand that if I give them any kind of guidance, you've got time. You've got time to figure out what I might mean by that. And they don't get stressed thinking that, oh, if I don't understand what it means, 
uh, it's going to escalate. Yeah. Because a lot of the horses that I have worked with, you give them any kind of guidance and they just tense up and they go, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. And it's just because they're expecting it to get worse if they don't respond correctly. So a lot of the guidance that I give them is just, you know, I put my hand here or I, you know, do something and I just give them time to sort of figure out what that could mean. And if they really can't figure it out, then I break it down into a smaller step or I make make it, I ask them in a different way or they're not ready for that kind of guidance yet. So we go back to what we have been doing and then we revisit that idea a little bit later on. Yeah. And so I think that's a very big part of the approach and philosophy that it's, I don't rush them. And if they don't respond, there's usually a reason for that. So either I'm not clear enough or they're not physically or mentally ready for that type of guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then as well, I think with the, with the big picture of what I'm searching for, it's that feeling of connection. Like I was talking with Ty before, like if I bring him out into a big paddock, that he can run around and he can explore the space. He's not afraid of leaving me, but he's still mentally connected. Yes. That's sort of a big sort of picture thing that I've got in the back of my mind. That's kind of the thing that I want. So if at any time my horse decides to walk away or go and, you know, have a buck and a play, they've still got me sort of in their focus and sort of ready to respond to sort of my guidance because they are eagerly waiting for a bit of guidance Yes. And of course, boundaries are important as well. And applying boundaries in a clear enough way that you're not breaking down the relationship. And just going back to your use of non-escalating pressure, do you, or that's gentle guidance that you talk about in conjunction with that, I mean, do you use combined reinforcement with that, with that pressure or do you use that separately? Like, how does that work? Does it depend on the horse? Yeah, it definitely uh, depends on the horse, Um, but generally it is definitely combined with the rewards. So I apply a little bit of guidance. I sort of wait for them to figure out what it is. And usually it's something that's like I set them up for success by asking them to do something that they will generally say yes to or that they would generally know the answer to. So when I feel like they're at that point, you know, sort of like, if you're going to teach your horse Piaf, for example, and you're working with the horse, you can kind of feel that the Piaf is there already, but you haven't asked for it yet, but you know that if you do ask for it, it'll happen. So that sort of mentality with most of the things I teach them, where I feel like if I ask them to do this, they're probably going to do it because they're already, the seed has already sort of been planted in one way or another. And when they do respond to that, of course, they get rewarded straight away. I go, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was looking for. Or that's, you know, definitely in the right direction. So I reinforce with food food rewards a lot. Like I've got a high rate of reinforcement throughout every training, um, every training session. And the gentle guidance is basically just to show them this is kind of what I'm inviting you to do. Would you be willing to explore in that direction? And then when they do, I go, oh, yeah, that was fantastic. You're the best horse ever. Here, <laughs> have yeah. some food rewards. So um that it's definitely combined. They, they both go together. Yeah. Very cool. And one of our listener questions is, have you ever regretted teaching a trick or how you taught that trick? And if so, why? Yes. So I was thinking about this question and I, I, I mean, I definitely have taught tricks that I wouldn't teach again, or I wouldn't teach it in the same way, but I wouldn't say I regret it because it's been a learning opportunity and it goes back to like using that 
like the horse is, you know, learning from the horse and using a bit of trial and error to figure out sort of what works for you and what works for the horse. So I wouldn't say that I, I regret sort of going through this process because it's been a really big part of the journey. Mm-hmm. But in terms of things that I wouldn't reteach or I wouldn't teach in the same way, um, pretty early on in my Liberty training with Callie, I saw someone do a really nice PF and I was just like, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to teach Callie that. And I went out into the paddock every day and I started teaching her to like pick up her legs. And like, I literally, like she had no dressage background mm-hmm. or anything. I just saw this movement and I thought of it as a trick. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if she could trot on the spot like that? And, you know, I taught her and, and I mean, the, I did end up getting like, a lookalike PF, like she was bouncing sort of diagonally on the spot. Mm-hmm. But knowing what I know now, I know that that, for one, was not a PF. Yeah. It does not qualify as a PF. And it was not healthy for her to to do that in, in that sort of, in that posture because she had a lot of weight on her hind. She was, she was had a lot of weight on her forelegs. She was sort of really sort of like it was not, just not healthy for her to be in that posture and she was really contracted and I look back at videos of when I was doing this and she's like swishing her tail like a million miles an hour and she's got this really tense look on her face she was just not happy mm-hmm. and the thing was getting into the academic art of riding and actually working through the process of when you can actually get to a you know like a proper PF or something that's worthy of the name <laughs> PF she would you know, very quickly revert into what I had taught her several years ago. She'd be like, oh, but this is this is how I'm supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And she had just kind of learned how to contort herself into that posture and into that movement, which was just not good for her mentally or physically because it was uncomfortable for her to move that way. Like it was not relaxed. It was not like she was not strong enough to do it. So she had to find a way to compensate. And she was probably painful because of her back and everything, I mean, she was definitely painful. And so whenever we would get up to that kind of that, you know, that idea of perhaps collecting a little bit into Piaf, she would revert back mentally as well and be like, oh, no, this is, you know, I don't like this. I don't like this kind of thought. So there was a lot to get past that association that she had with the movement and like collecting. And I had to change, almost pretend like I was teaching her something completely different Mm -hmm. and like, like just pretend that it was a whole different sort of movement altogether that had nothing to do with what we were doing years ago like so that's definitely something I regret teaching and well well you know that's something that I wouldn't teach it in the same way again because knowing what I know and she Callie also does this or she used to do this thing it's like a spinning rear where she sort of rears up and she spins around on her hind legs really quickly yeah and it's something, you know, it was really cool at the time. And that was when she first did that, when she first sort of, because I was teaching her like spin and rearing separately. And one day she's just like, I'm going to do both at the same time. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and at that time I was very focused on just teaching my horse cool things, you know, just like cool tricks. Like I wasn't, I was in a very different place in my journey. So yeah. for me at that time, I was like, oh my God, this is like the coolest thing ever. And, but knowing what I know now, I know that, that that would have put a lot of strain strain on her hind legs and it wouldn't have been a very healthy thing for her to do. Mm. So while, you know, 
it's done and it's it's happened and it was fun at the time it's definitely not something that I would encourage her to do sometimes she kind of looks like she's about to offer it and I'm just like no don't do that because you're ancient now well she's not she's 19 but to me she's like an old lady and um you know and it's just something that I wouldn't teach again I wouldn't teach another horse to do it either and that's just sort of my personal thing like I'm sure you know that there's other ways to teach it and probably less straining ways to do it perhaps but it's just not really like doing cool tricks and stuff is not really like for now I'm just more like about the relationship and the connection and working at liberty and like playing around with different things yeah so it's not as much of a sort of an emphasis in my work with the horses I suppose and the last thing as well that I think um, I wouldn't redo is when I had little twinkles and I taught her how to kiss but she got really violent with it and she would like bonk <laughs> people in the head whenever there was like a carrot around so I mean I probably you know there's, there's ways to teach them to be gentle about it but I wouldn't teach it the same way as I did because she would see the carrot and be like oh it's time to kiss and like yeah, just like bonk you in the head yeah yeah I feel like we've got to be so careful when we teach certain behaviors that could yeah. you know eventually lead to something dangerous if it if they kind of amplify what they're doing um, yes that's right <laughs> especially for those horses that are like oh, you want me to do that? Okay, I'll do that times 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another listener question we have is, what are your favourite foundations for liberty training? Yeah, um, I think we've touched a fair bit on this already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the my favourite foundation is, again, that liberty is something that the horse is feeling and not something that he's technically, like, doing. Yeah. Um, Again, feeling like they have the choice to sort of explore the space and the movement, you know, they feel like they can, you know, run away and do their thing but still remain mentally connected. Yeah. Um, And let's see, always something in for the horse, of course. Yes. (laughs) And not underestimating the power as well of like that energy and intention and using that in your guidance because I find that a lot of the time if you have for example like a a spectrum of zero to a hundred percent of pressure and a hundred percent is like you know full pressure like beating like you know like Like they have no other choice yeah 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 like full-on like beating like like it's a hundred percent pressure and zero percent is like no pressure at all like you're not doing anything like you're not even near the horse there's nothing and I find that a lot of the time we are working in like the 80 to 100%, like it's very rare for people to go up to 100%, but let's say 70 to 90% quadrant Mm -hmm. because we're not aware enough of our own energy and our intention and the body awareness. Horses are so in tune to like every tiny little thing that we do with our body because like while we are very, like we're language-based beings, like we speak with language and we rely a lot on language for communication, whereas horses are not very vocal and they rely a lot on body language. So they're incredibly in tune to what we are doing with our body and even the tiniest little things that we might not notice. And so for a horse, like, for example, if you were going to ask the horse to back up or something, you stand in front of him and you, like, lift your hands and you say, okay, back up, and you do a little movement with your hands, which I'm doing that right now that you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> but you do, like, a little movement towards the horse, like, with your hands or something to say, I'd like you to back up. I feel that that's already up to, like, 70% of what what that sort of spectrum is Mm -hmm. and we can become a lot more aware of what we're doing with our energy and intention that we can start way lower down on that spectrum and they'll still notice 
But that requires a lot of like mindfulness and a lot of body awareness to really tick into that that sort of level yeah. where the where the horses are quite comfortable as well. And I find that on on those days when I feel really sort of in tune, sort of with my body and I sort of I, I feel a little bit more aware of what I'm doing the horses are a lot calmer and they're a lot more engaged because I feel like I'm working a lot more on their level of communication rather than almost screaming at them from the very beginning yes because for us that's a small movement we go okay can you back up a little bit like well like you know some kind of movement with our hands but the horse has noticed you know way way less than that like the their normal level of communication is way below that so when we can tap into that really low level of communication, they are one, a lot more comfortable. And two, when if you do need to make you feel like if if you feel like they because they they've learned a lot to ignore those little things with us. Yeah. Like they it's just something that we're not aware of. So they go, oh, I don't really need to, or whatever you do up until this point doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. So when they realize that you do mean something they're a lot more in tune to that level of communication. But when you first start, they're going to think that, oh, that doesn't mean anything that, you know, I I should just ignore that. Yeah. But when, like when you first start and you show them that little bit of communication, you may have to get a little bit more clear with what you're asking. Yeah. But all of a sudden you've gone from 40% to 50% and you've got the same reaction from the horse as you would have when you went from 70% to 80%. Yes, like they're, they're noticing that difference in like the contrast in your escalation rather than the level of escalation you're at. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, the, yeah, they're, they're noticing the the level of elevation rather than, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, le- the way you're, where you are on that spectrum of zero to 100%. Yeah, and what yeah. came up then when you were talking about that, I was thinking about those people who perhaps have horses who have already learnt to some extent to kind of really push through a lot of pressure or ignore their horse, uh, their human's body language and intentions because it hasn't really meant a lot in the past, how Mm -hmm. would you suggest they go working towards this level of pressure that you're using if they're starting at that point already? Yeah. And I, you know, it sort of depends on how you're sort of working with your horse already. And, but even, even if you are working with, for example, just, a bit of pressure and release and you're not even working with positive reinforcement yeah you can if you just if you start working on becoming more aware of what you're doing mm-hmm. and every little thing that like just keep in mind that everything that you're doing your horse is noticing yeah. and either he knows to respond to it or he you know feels like he can respond to it or he feels like it's something that he needs to ignore so i feel like it's more about you're working on yourself and gaining your own body awareness and then when you're working with your horse before you actually ask him to do something just tap into your own body and be like okay what's what would be my normal way of starting to ask my horse to do this and then divide it you know go divide it by half like whatever it is whatever cue you're using divide that by half and then divide it by half again so that it's so so tiny what, what it is that you're doing until it's literally just like a slight lift in your energy or a slight change in your intention. Mm-hmm. And then when your horse goes, oh, no, like that usually doesn't mean anything, you go, okay, well, let me help you. But as long as you, and then you can go back to sort of 
you can go to where, what you would normally do. Mm-hmm. But if you always start at that level, you start at that very light, very subtle um, ask or invitation, mm-hmm. if you make that a habit, eventually your horse is going to start responding to it. Yes, love that. One of my mantras is start lighter, wait longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. I try and always love have that, that in my head because I think it's just natural for humans, especially when we just want to get stuff done. You know, we go we go really fast, we escalate quickly, and it's like we really need to slow down, like you said, yes. be aware of what our body is doing and start even lighter than you think Yes, and, exactly. and wait longer for that response. Yes, oh, 100%. And usually um, even if we feel like we're going way too slow, the horse still feels like we're going way too fast. Mm. So it's, yeah. you know, if you feel like you're going slow enough, slow down even more and the horse will really respond well to that. You feel like you're not getting anything done, but you are – um, what's the saying? Slow progress is, can't remember the saying, but it's like slow progress is fast progress or something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like slow down to speed up kind of thing. Yes, that, that one, slow down to speed up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. One thing that really stands out to me, especially scrolling through your Instagram and having a look at your reels, is that your horses always look so happy and enthusiastic and, and exuberant. And I'm curious to know from you, what do you think makes a happy horse? Yeah, okay. Um Well, first of all, I think the number one thing is that all of their needs are met outside of training, Mm -hmm. that they need to be happy and comfortable in all the other aspects of their life in order to be happy and comfortable within the training. Like the training is just a very small part of their life. So if they're not happy in the rest of their lives and all their needs aren't met, it's going to be really hard for them to be calm and engaged in the training session if if, you know, if they're not happy otherwise. Yes. So that's definitely the number one thing that they need to have everything that a horse needs and, you know, be, be feeling like a horse and be feeling good as a horse <laughs> and putting the relationship, when it comes to the training, putting the relationship first, sometimes it's really easy for the ego to sort of take hold and be like, Oh, but I really mm-hmm. want to teach you this thing, or I really want you to do this thing. And in those situations, it's really important to be like, okay, what's more important here? Is it me maintaining this relationship with my horse or is it him doing what it is that I want him to do? Because if they are resisting and if they are saying, you know, resisting to whatever invitation it is that you're giving them, there's a reason behind that. Like either they don't feel ready, there's some kind of reason that's making them a little bit resistant. And you need to find the cause of that reason in order to sort of... um, ensure that the relationship doesn't break down so you can abandon that idea for a little bit and then be like okay what is like what's the reason and go down to the reason Mm -hmm. because if the horse feels like you're not going to really respect that or if if they feel like they're going to be pushed through things you're going to end up with a liberty horse that is just doing he's just uh, like on autopilot and he's just kind of a robot (laughs) and he's just doing the thing and you don't have to go to the point of like really like forcefully pressuring them to shut them down in that way it can be enough to just sort of push them a little bit to the point where they go oh yeah no that's okay because they're such peaceful animals that they are going to always try to find the path of released resistance and they're a lot more they're really in tune to that more so than we are so sometimes they find that path of least resistance even if we don't really realize it and you're not going to get the same engagement and the same expression in the horse unless he truly feels like it's his choice. 
So I think that's sort of a big thing in having a happy horse in the training. And, yeah, I think those are the two biggest things and not rushing them, you know, not rushing them to perform. Like it's more you just being together and allowing them to express themselves and engage and do their thing and you're kind of passively there giving a little bit of ideas and guidance. Yes, makes sense. One of the biggest kind of challenges I face when I'm educating people on um, the horse's basic needs, especially the need for companionship to have other horses in with them, is that they say, oh, well, my horse is in its own paddock, but it can touch horses over the fence. Do you Mm. think that is enough? Do you think horses really need that physical contact to be in with other horses and how many horses? Or is it okay for horses just to be able to touch over the fence? I definitely prefer for horses to be in together. Yeah. Because that way they can, it's really hard for them to sort of move about as a herd and do herd things if they are separated by a fence. So because they're herd animals, I think the biggest thing that we can do against their nature is keep them by themselves or separate them so that they can't. I mean, being able to touch over the fence is much better than having the horse completely isolated. Yes. Definitely, like 100%. And if that's the only option, then, you know, great. Like that's definitely better than keeping the horse by itself on a property where you can't even see another horse. Mm-hmm. But in an ideal world, I love for my horses to be in in with other horses. But in, an, you know, in horses, in a domestic setting, in a setting that we are in where we can pick and choose which horses go in with which horses, I would definitely pick horses that get along together. Like it can be a lot more stressful if you put a horse in and it's getting bullied by another horse for some reason, you know, and it's constantly getting picked on. That horse is going to be going like undergoing a lot of stress in with those other horses or that other horse. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal situation, I would put horses in together as long as they work well together. If if going to, you know, and and of course, when you put like a new horse in with a couple of other horses, they're going to, um, that horse is going to get pushed around quite a bit most of the time before it sort of finds its place there. Mm -hmm. And that's quite normal. And sometimes that's just what they have to go through. But if it's an ongoing thing where this one horse is constantly, you know, getting picked on or is getting, you know, really like kicked like all the time and injured like it's better for that horse to then go in with another horse that doesn't do that of yeah. course so, I mean because we have that I mean because we have that control in the situation that we're in it's it's much less stressful for them to be in with horses that that go well together instead of having horses that are constantly fighting or putting you know in um or really sort of clashing it's it's funny, like when you reflect on your own journey, I think back to a time where all my horses were isolated from each other. They had paddock boots on, they were rugged up to the eyeballs. And mm-hmm. now, you know, they're all together, they're scruffy, they're, they're covered in dirt. Um, and, yes. you know, they just, sure, they probably don't look as nice and clean, but I really do think they're happier. Um, yeah, I have such a similar, like in my journey as well, like I used to have them, you know, like rugged and and clean and separated and, and everything. And now they're just like fluffy potatoes. And yeah. it's great. <laughs> they're so happy and they're just rolling in the mud. And I get there and I'm just like, oh, you're so muddy. But it's okay because you got to roll in the mud and I'm happy for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and what's something that you wish that every horse owner would do differently? So 
I think a big thing is to avoid anthropomorphism or assigning human qualities onto the horse. And in some cases it is, you know, it's good. Like if you're looking at a horse that is stressed or if you're looking at a horse that is um, like in pain or that it's hurt itself and you think, oh, well, if I was in that situation, you know, I'd, I'd like someone to do something about that or I'd like some pain relief, you know. So, you know, in some in some cases, it's good to refer sort of to how you how you would feel in that situation, but a lot of the time it leads to a horse suffering in one way or another, especially when it's in a training situation. Mm-hmm. So, um, thinking of like for example, a horse that is resisting to doing something that you want him to do, you could quite easily think, oh well, he's just being disobedient, he's just being naughty, he's just being lazy he's um, trying to put it over me, he's being dominant, all those things, and they all lead to you trying to put the horse in his place or trying to push through what it is, like their resistance, instead of thinking, oh, like in a horse's point of view, why is he thinking, you know, what's going on in his head as a horse? Because a lot of the time that that type of thinking and applying those human characteristics onto the horse justifies the following actions that will be done. So it's really, really important to try to avoid doing that in a training setting and understand really like taking the time to read about how horses think, how their brains are different to human brains, how they experience the world with their senses and evolution and all of that to figure out or to get an idea. I mean, there's no way to know for sure how horses think and experience the world, like unless we somehow, you know, get to spend a day in their in their head. But we can make some pretty good speculations about how they do think and how they don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to educate yourself in that area before you go and train the horse so that you don't go and, you know, just think of the horse as being naughty or trying to put it over you or just not doing it because he doesn't want to and you know so I think that's probably if every horse owner could do something differently it's probably to avoid that which is not easy to do it definitely requires you to sort of take the time to educate yourself and really explore that side of things but I think it, it makes a really big difference in your training and your relationship with your horse if you see them as a horse and not a human so yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I I definitely agree that anthropomorphism can be um, used like in a negative way, especially when people are saying like, oh, my horse is naughty or lazy or like he's doing that to disrespect me. But I have to say I'm guilty of anth- anthropomorphizing in kind of a positive light, like as in saying yeah. like, oh, um, he's such a cheeky horse, but like in a, you know, in a playful way. Um, yes, yes so, of course. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I actually went through a phase where I was like, oh, no, anthropomorphizing is so bad. Like I have to stop all of that language. And I just felt so um, inhibited. But then I realized I was using it in a positive way. So it wasn't really, yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't really detrimental to my training. <laughs> yes. And that's definitely, um, you know, it, it's fun to use it sort of in a positive way and like in a in a joking way as well. Yeah. And but I think it's just important to be sort of aware of like when it is a joke and sort of when it's not as well, because we get so used to being like, oh, well, you know, like 
chestnut mare, like, I don't know, like those sorts of things. And then sometimes when you're in the training situation, you're kind of used to thinking in that way that you sort of like, it's easy to fall into the pattern. But yeah, I think it's just becoming aware of it. I mean, there's no harm in, you know, sort of using it in a positive light and like in a cheeky way or in a way to sort of help the horse as well to sort of understand, you know, oh, well, I would suffer in that situation or I'd be painful in that situation. So I'm going to try to help the horse, definitely. But yeah, just staying away from those things that are detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. And if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, okay. Um, I think the first person would be Frederick Pignon. Mm-hmm. And he's an incredible Liberty trainer. And I had the privilege of fence-sitting at one of his clinics at the Gold Coast. Um, this was probably uh, two, three years ago or something like that now. But I really liked, I mean, that's the only, I've read his book and I've also, I've just seen him at that clinic. And so I don't know 100% how he works or what his principles are or anything like that. But usually his horses are very engaged and very expressive in sort of in a positive way. And when he was working with the horses at the clinic, his energy was incredibly quiet. Like he had like this very quiet energy about him and the way that he worked with the horses. And I remember this one pony that came in that was really quite shut down to the environment. Like he was really sort of just not like in a horse that's at a new place that is being let go into a new area, you would expect him to be a little bit like, oh, like explore and be like, oh, what's going on and looking around a little bit. But this pony just kind of went in and just went, yeah, and just like was staring. Like there was no, not much engagement or anything in that, in him at all. Like he wasn't really interested in what was going on. And after Frederick worked with him a little bit, he just sort of came alive and he was carrying himself in the most beautiful posture. Like this little pony suddenly became this little stallion and he was really lifting himself really beautifully. Wow. Um, and this is all in a new environment and with a new trainer, like he didn't know Frederick before. And Yeah, exactly. Wow. I, I was really impressed by that. And that's also sort of where um, I started working a little bit more with like posture and and getting them to this sort of like expression and like carrying themselves in a proud manner and and those sorts of things. Um, So that's sort of triggered that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second person I'd love to have dinner with would be Lucy Reese, who I mentioned a little bit earlier because she's observed a lot of wild horses and has made some very interesting speculations um, or observations, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so it would be awesome to sort of, ask her some questions and just just ask about her experience and just talk talk to her and and you know just have dinner and have a chat yeah and I think the third person I'd love to meet would be Warwick Schiller as well mm-hmm. and he's he's just such a open-minded humble and cool person that he's he I I have followed him for many years and I watched his training and everything and when I first started following him he worked a lot differently with his horses than he does now. Yes. And he started exploring like a lot of work with like mindfulness and being attuned to the horse and picking up on the really small signals and responding to that. And it's really, really interesting that like, for one, I, I like the work that he's doing and it's really interesting. And I'd love to talk about that, but just because he is so humble and open-minded is what's allowed him to sort of go down this path and explore different paths instead of just being 
really close-minded and being like my way is the only way which you see in a lot of horse trainers they just kind of get fixated that okay this way is the only way and they don't sort of extend out that bubble and anyone that's doing something differently they're just like oh no like that's not right whereas like I think he'd just be so much fun to talk to because he's so humble and open-minded yeah he would be really interesting to talk to yeah I don't think he uses a a heck of a lot of positive reinforcement I'm sure he's experimented with it um Mm. but yeah I love his openness his lack of or awareness of ego I should say because no one has no ego um but yeah I and I really like how he's been humble enough to turn around like from having an already established online training program and working a certain way to going hang on a second there's more to this and then you know going on that journey and sharing it with everyone else it's very cool yes yeah definitely definitely and I was going to ask you earlier actually going back to the liberty mindset how, well, I mean, I'm sure you take this liberty mindset into your riding as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is it kind of different when you ride? How do you, what what sort of advice do you have for people to take that liberty mindset into, into the saddle? Yeah, um, definitely. You have to be, of course, a little bit careful when you start because depending on where your horse is at with the riding, you don't want to just sort of let go of all control and then have the horse you know, take off or something like that. So a very gradual transition is definitely important. Um, But when I'm riding my horses or especially Nina at the moment, she's sort of the main horse that I ride. And it's a very similar mindset a lot of the time. Like when I'm working by myself with her, I sort of work so that she can, she offers different manoeuvres and I can give like a little bit of guidance here and there and sort of encourage or sort of give her little ideas, sort of like, so she's picking herself up and collecting a little bit. And I go, oh, okay, well, can we take that into a little shoulder in perhaps? And I just change my seat a little bit. And if she responds to that, then, you know, fantastic. But if she doesn't, then I sort of have to go back into sort of a neutral seat and sort of wait for her to feel a little bit differently before I give that suggestion again and that's definitely something that I'm exploring with quite actively at the moment and I wouldn't say I'm terribly experienced in that aspect but it's it's a lot of fun to play around with the ideas but because I am learning the academic art of writing and I'm getting at the moment I'm getting sort of online lessons with Christopher Dargan from Horse Vision that I talked about in the beginning mm-hmm. and I sort of have to go back to sort of a normal way of riding and the normal way of using pressure while I'm learning this way of training. And then once I sort of understand how it should feel and how my seat should be or, you know, sort of playing around with the, you know, how it sort of is done, then I can take those ideas and those principles into the liberty, like liberty way of riding Mm -hmm. and, it's you know it's it's definitely work in progress but when I'm riding at the moment like I I ride quite as one normally would at the moment you know just you know with the bride bridle and inside leg and you know I, I use all of the aids but I'm sort of exploring the liberty side of riding at the same time here and there but when I need to sort of work on myself I need to sort of ride normally <laughs> Yes, no, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, Nina's a bit of my guinea pig at the moment. And she's, I mean, she's, she's a really beautiful horse and she's very, very 
um, like she's just beautiful inside and out and she puts up with me a lot. Um, so, I mean, of course, if there's something that doesn't feel quite right, like if she resists to going into a shoulder in or into, into a quarter, like, you know, if there's something that she resists to, I don't try to push her through it and just try to get her to do it. I try to set her up again. Like I go back to sort of neutral and then I reset her up or set her up to succeed in a different way. Mm. So instead of just putting on more pressure, but yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And um, do you have any favourite horse books or resources? Yeah, well, recently I really gotten into podcasts. Yes. <laughs> so I was never really, I never listened to podcasts very much until probably like four or five months ago I started listening to podcasts and I realised how much I really like them because you can learn something from absolutely everyone. Like, we are all on our own journey and we've all, you know, gotten to the point that we're at from through some kind of different path. Yes. And in every single podcast that I listen to, I pick up, you know, some kind of interesting idea or interesting way of thinking about something or some, you know, whole new concept. And I've just, I've realized that podcasts are so incredibly useful and I'm kicking myself that I don't didn't start listening to podcasts earlier. So I think they're a really valuable resource because you can just listen to so many different people and pick up, you know, little bits and pieces here and there. And then a book, I mean, Frederick Pignon's book, he talks a lot of, he has, he's got a lot of um, good insights into liberty training in his Gallop to Freedom book. Yes, love that so book. One of yes, my favourites. That is fantastic. And Ben Branderup, in terms of the academic art of writing, he's got several books and online videos. Mm -hmm. and I like Anya Biren's books on classical dressage as well she's got a lot of good too. she's coming on the podcast soon actually so I'm super excited about that yeah I know that's so (laughs) exciting I'm so keen for that one yeah I'm just stoked to have her on too so um keep an eye out for that (laughs) oh 100% and what has been your best horse related purchase in the last 12 months um I think the best horse related purchase was I went to we went we went back to Sweden over Christmas mm-hmm. and we spent a month in in Sweden and we also went up to Alta which is like north Norway it's like literally on top of the world and the sun doesn't even come up in winter it's great mm-hmm. and I realized that there was um like a it was like I felt like a real tourist but there was like a horse riding experience where you could go and ride like a fjord horse like in the in the yeah, winter and yeah cool yeah and I was like oh my god I have to do that because I've never ridden a fjord horse and of course there's fjord horses here in Australia as well but you're riding them like in their native like land and the snow and the forests and the frozen lakes and everything it was just beautiful so I I messaged them and I was like oh would you have any time available and they were like yeah sure and then we made up a time and I got to go just alone with the guide so we got to go for a bit of a trot and a canter and a gallop through through the forest in the snow and it was just really really lovely so I think that's definitely my best horse related purchase in the last 12 months. That sounds incredible and um, even earlier in this interview when you were talking about when you're a child and you go to different locations and you just seek out the horses. I yeah. still do that now, even though I've got my own horses. If we go on holiday, oh. I'm like, where are the horses? <laughs> me too. Me too. All the time. I'm like, I wonder where the horses are around here. <laughs> and what is your ultimate goal with horses? 
Um, I think just to, well, for one, to be, for them to be happy and healthy physically and emotionally mm-hmm. and to have a good relationship with them. That's kind of like my two sort of ultimate goals. And then coming down from that, I love exploring the concept of collection at Liberty, like balance collection and having them sort of mentally connected and them sort of owning that movement and doing it themselves rather than me sort of using them as a bit of a puppet, you know, like I I kind of want them to be in themselves and be sort of offering these movements at Liberty engaged. So that's definitely sort of high up there and something that I'm exploring at the moment. And the other thing that I've been exploring is not only how emotion affects their posture, Mm -hmm. like if they're feeling like really energetic and really engaged they're of course going to change the way they hold themselves and get themselves into like a really agile state where they're sort of collected and ready to go but interestingly also how posture affects their emotion like the other way around and playing with horses that are a little bit so to speak like a little bit low energy or a little bit uninterested a little bit disengaged working on them finding a nice posture and either just at the halt or either even just like like in movement as well like helping them find a nice posture where they're carrying themselves in a strong way seems to also affect their emotional state and they get a little bit more energetic and a little bit more kind of engaged in the work which is really interesting and again I don't have a scientific paper to, to back that up at all but it's just something that I've sort of started noticing in the horses that if they're not already in that state where they're kind of engaged and um, carrying themselves in that posture where they're sort of ready and and sort of agile, if you go the other way around and encourage them to sort of pick themselves up a little bit and play around with the posture and the movement, they can sort of tap into the emotion as well, which is um, really, really fun to play with and really interesting. And I remember reading a while ago, I think maybe it was a TED talk or something, but um, they've done a couple of studies in people and how the posture affects people emotional states. So if you're like walking down the street and you got you're like hunched over and you got your hands like sort of crossed over your body and you're looking down and like you like kind of slouched over, there's an emotion that sort of comes along with that and how you sort of feel a little bit sort of in your shell and a little bit depressed and not confident. Whereas if you're walking down the street with your head held high and you're looking around, your shoulders back and you're lifted, you kind of feel like the queen of the world. So I I think that there's a connection there. I don't know for sure, and it could just be like coincidence, but it seems like there's a pattern starting to form there when you're starting to work with posture before the emotional state. Mm, Yeah, that's so interesting. And I I feel like I've experienced that definitely in myself where, you know, perhaps I've not been in the best kind of mood, but I've been in a situation where I've got to put on a happy face kind of thing. And then after (laughs) I'm like, oh, I feel great now. (laughs) I feel much better. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure that horses experience the same thing. And it's, yeah, I've, I've even seen that in my own horses when I've been working more on posture and movement. And then I'm like, oh, they feel a little bit more lively now. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and what is the one message before we wrap up that you would like our listeners to hear from today's interview? Oh, I think I think the one message would be to don't be afraid to go out there and just sort of, trial and error a little bit and just play with your horse like if you don't have someone in your location or you don't have anyone to really help you 
don't be afraid to just go out and and try a little bit of stuff. Like many people are really worried about doing something that's not like a step-by-step process because they're worried about ruining their horse or doing or teaching them something wrong. And like, of course, you don't want to go out there and like abuse them or something that, you know, that's, that's going to definitely hurt them a lot emotionally and physically. But if you're just going out there and you're just playing with a couple of different, you know, if, if, if an idea pops into your head and you're just like, Oh, I'm going to try that and see what response I get from my horse. And then that way you're going to learn how to learn from your horse rather than being really reliant on people teaching you a step-by-step process or how to do something. And it it will feel a little bit awkward and feel a little bit weird in the beginning because it feels like you're just like kind of flouncing, like you're not really, you don't really know what you're doing. That's what it's going to feel like. Like you don't know what you're doing, but eventually it'll start to kind of unfold and it'll start to flow a little bit because you're learning with your horse and you're learning how to get your message through to the horse in in different ways so if you if you learn that and if you learn how to think for yourself then really the sky is the limit yes and I feel like that's kind of connected to your what you mentioned earlier is one of your biggest breakthroughs as mm-hmm. really just learning to think to yourself because I do think that is kind of the difference between those people who um train their horses but they're not really sure what they're doing versus those trainers who really uh make progress is they're looking for those yes moments. They they understand exactly what it is that they're kind of going for and that they've been through that trial and error process to get to that point where they can critically think for themselves. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You kind of can't skip that um, trial and error making mistakes process. You just, you gotta, you gotta go through it. Yeah, <laughs> right? You gotta I'm go through it. Through it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me too. All the time. Like it's, every session is just pretty much just trying something new. <laughs> and seeing what happens. I am feeling so inspired. I just want to like wrap up this interview and go outside and do liberty stuff with my horses right oh. now. <laughs> so thank you so much, Nadine, for coming on to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast today. I've personally learned so much and I'm sure all of our listeners will get something out of today's episode. So before we um, say goodbye, can you tell us where our listeners can find out more about you and what you offer? Yeah, definitely. So the place I'm most active these days is Instagram. And the the username for that one at the moment is balanced out of liberty with dots in between each word, I think. And but I'm probably going to change that name soon just to my name. So just Nadine Limblum would like no nothing in between. Mm-hmm. So if you were searching for something, it's probably best to just search my name and it should come up. And if I do have a online liberty course that I'm currently in the process of making and if you want to stay up to date with that one then the best way would be just to um, sign up for like sign up to the email list and if you sign up to the email list then the first thing I'm going to do once it's almost ready or once it is ready is send out an email and then the second thing will be that it goes on social media so if you do want to be the first one to sort of know when that comes out then the email list is the best thing and when you do sign up to the email list, you get a little free guide as well about improving your relationship with the horse. And I am also on Facebook, but I'm not as active on Facebook. And at the moment, the name on Facebook is Balanced Art of Liberty as well, Equine Mind Movement and Medicine. Mm-hmm. And I'm dabbling with a little bit of TikTok as well at the moment. Oh, cool. So that's just uh, Nadine Limblum on that one. Yeah. And the website is www.balancedartofliberty.com.au. 
Perfect. And I'll put the links to all of those various handles, websites, et cetera, um, in the show notes to this episode. So people can have a look there as well. Awesome. So um, thank you again. I'm, I'm really excited about your Liberty course. I want to sign up straight away for that. So <laughs> super excited. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you again. Awesome. We'll, we'll speak soon. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit the follow button so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or screenshot this episode and share it on social media. You can connect with me on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses or my website, AmaliaDempsey.com, where you can find free resources to help you on your horsemanship journey. That's all for today. Thanks for being here. Remember to train with kindness and ride with excellence and I'll see you in the next episode. 